My name's Elijah and welcome to my songwriting for songwriters podcast. Joining me today is one of my heroes, the legendary and brilliant Steve Harley. Steve and I sit down and talk about his uh, life as a songwriter, his love of being a performer, the stories behind uh, a few of his big hits, what songwriting means to him, where he's at right now, and so, so much more. Uh, it was a real honour and uh, privilege to spend time talking to Steve, and uh, I hope you will enjoy this podcast. Please subscribe and Joining me today on my Songwriting for Songwriters podcast is Steve Harley. Steve, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you very much. Yeah, nice to see you. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. How, what, how are you? What's going on in, in your world right now? Wait, wait, what's uh, happening? Oh, we're, I'm in a bit of a limbo. and we, we played about 40 concerts this year, some of them the full band in uh, Holland and Belgium, Germany. Um I didn't go to Germany this year. Uh, and then about 30 or 40, maybe 40 with the acoustic new quartet, acoustic Great. quartet, which I love. And we finished at the uh, 1st of July. Then I took my extended family on to a three-week holiday in Greece. So I'm back now and uh, <clears throat> start again in November. So I'm a couple of months, you know. Good for you, good for you. Let me just start by reading something to you. Um uh, which is quite interesting. Uh, when I was in my late teens, I went into my local record shop in Harrogate, which always played all the latest music. And suddenly the most amazing track came on, which blew me away and filled the whole room with the most exquisite sound. I asked the sales guy what it was. And he told me it was a band called Cockney Rebel. And the track was called Sebastian. Still sounds great. Goodness knows how many years later. Top band. That message is from my dad. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. I have to start with that because... My dad is a huge fan of yours, and and therefore, when I was a little boy, growing up, he played the, all his vinyl, and so you were someone who was like loved by my dad, and therefore, as I was growing up, kind of thinking, listening to music, and wanting to become a songwriter, you were mentioned a lot, <clears throat> and also Top of the Pops Two was on at the time, and the video of you know you playing Come Up and See Me, wearing that cool jacket with the fur coat, I was like, right, <laughs> he's yeah. cool, I want to be him. And that's yeah. a great song. So in my building blocks of being a songwriter, you were very kind of a, a huge presence. So my first question to you really is to just ask you, when you were starting out and, and going into deciding to be a writer and getting into music, who were the influences on you that kind of made you want to become a writer? Well, um, mainly they were literary rather than musical. Um, right. Yeah, I, I was an avid reader as a kid. I spent nearly four years in hospital. Okay between the age of three and 16, various uh, sojourns of up to nine, 10 months at a time, twice. Um, and I was reading a lot. When I was only 12 years old, I was reading uh, Hemingway and Steinbeck. Wow. Lawrence's poetry, Eliot's poetry, Virginia Woolf. I was reading all of them, and not Dickens, oddly enough. I read a lot of Shakespeare, but I didn't read Dickens. Um, Yet, never have. Okay. But they were my, I just love words, as, as Shakespeare said, words, words, words. And um, I had a passion for it. Uh, so I was writing poetry when I was young. Yeah. Mostly, mostly uh, nonsense, pub rubbish. You know. But uh, it, it was just words. Um, my mum was a singer, uh, <clears throat> of course, 
Um, I think everyone knows that. Um, yeah. There was music all around the house, the flat that we were brought up in. And then uh, my, my older cousins uh, <clears throat> were playing at the end of the 50s, early 60s, when I was 11, 12 years old. They would be playing um, rock music, you know, Buddy Holly, <clears throat> Little Richard, and, uh, Elvis. And the Ebony Brothers, I found them fantastically interesting. The Ebony yeah. Amazing. The only brothers can sing that close to, you know, those harmonies. Yeah. And uh, so the music was big in my life, pop music. But I, I don't know. I never wanted to be a pop star. That kind of happened by accident. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, just words, really. Like you talk about Sebastian and had the effect it had on your dad. And we sing it to this day and singing it, playing it with the acoustic quartet at the moment is a phenomenal, wonderful experience for me. It's beyond words. I can't tell you how exciting it is. Fantastic. To, ex to express the words and find new meaning in it every single night. Yeah. The space I've got in an acoustic show is huge. You know, the space, it's enormous around me. And we, I tell audiences sometimes when Barry Wickens, my fiddle player, guitarist, when Barry plays a violin with me sometimes in a song called The Lighthouse, yeah. he brings it down to niente, chiesa niente, um, almost silent. And I say to them, I am in search of silence. That's what I am as a musician. I'm in search of silence. And we get there sometimes. Barry and I really get there. Ollie and David, the double bass and guitar, gifted musicians, really, really highly talented. But it's a, just a wonderful feeling. That we, we, we turned Sebastian into a sort of a Spanish bolero at the end. It's, it's ridiculous how it varies night after night after night. And that's the joy, yeah, the great yeah. joy of live performance. When you say you're in search of silence, that's a very interesting thing. Um, can we explore that for a second? Do you mean that like on stage or are you searching for silence within yourself or what is that you're looking for? Yeah, I'm not looking for three and a half minutes of what's it, John Cage. Um, it's, it's to bring an audience, it's knowing that, I mean, live performance is my great love. Yeah. Way, way above being in the studio. Okay. And um, <clears throat> to take an audience with you, I mean, we can play to 3,000, uh, down to 300 in you know, the acoustic sets and to bring them with me to carry them thinking I've got the entire room coming with me down to this uh, as the Italians you know niente nothing and to come bring them with me to that point you know um I can't express it to you. I told you it's, uh, they get it every night. They get it. If I get close to it, Barry comes with me there. We just bring it down to something where you could really almost literally hear a pin drop. Yeah. yeah. That's an amazing feeling. And yeah. it's live that I'm talking about. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. I know that feeling myself from playing my own songs where this, it doesn't happen every time, but like when it happens, it feels like the air gets thicker. And yeah. it's a communion between yourself, the audience, and the moment, and it's very, very special. So I, yeah. I you know, I think I 
I'm not sure it's exactly the same, but I, I feel like I resonate with what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, I, interestingly, since the COVID uh, time, um, when we started playing again, uh, August the 1st, year and a half ago, and um, when we started, I was saying at the end of shows, which were wonderful, emotional nights, and I was able to say to them, in, in lieu of good night, um, that something special happened. And, you know, um, and I actually said, I, I'm not a pretentious guy, I'm not at all, I'm very down to earth. And, uh, but I did have to say to them, we've always, I've always had an easy rapport, you know, since boat clubs. I've always had an easy rapport with people, with audiences. I don't know why, I don't know where it comes from. It's because I'm relaxed. I just love it so much. And uh, <clears throat> I was able to say to the audiences, look, something else is, I've always had an easy rapport with you guys since 1973. You know that. But something else happened tonight, didn't it? And they know it did wow. because they've come out of COVID and they're in their 50s and 60s. Yeah. And they're glad to be alive. And we've, God willing, delivered the goods. And... Um, I say to, just before we kick in to make me smile, which always cl closes the show. Uh, you know, tonight's different. I've had this rapport all this time, but tonight, t generally now, there's something different, and it is a sort of communion. Yeah. The small C, and yeah. you, you just use that word, and it's an amazing feeling that you yeah. feel that they've come with you, and it is a, a coming together, a communion. Wonderful feeling. Fantastic. Um. You obviously have had enormous success and, you know, that period in the 70s was prolific and you were massively successful. Um, looking back at that period now from, from who you are today, how, how how do you feel about that version of Steve, that songwriter Steve, and how how, how he, you know, what he was doing? Did, did you, how do you see him? Well, they were hedonistic times. I mean, we were young. At the age of 22, there I was at Air Studios and Abbey Road with a 40-piece orchestra rocking up, 20-piece choir. EMI basically gave my first producer, and Jeff Emmerich, the legendary engineer, yeah. engineered my first two albums, God bless him. Um, but Neil Harrison was an in-house producer at Manchester Square, and they gave us to, uh, to Neil first band he produced, I think. And uh, they gave him a blank check. It was a ridiculous thing. It wouldn't happen today. People make albums in their bedroom for 200 quid. Yeah. There we were, orchestra and choir. I'm 22 years old, and Sebastian is three chords. <laughs> um, you know, I'd been singing it and busking it, these three chords. I was busking in the streets of London on the doll, singing it. Wow. Three chords. It's just, it's all about the words, of course. And, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, and then we went on the road and it was mayhem. You know, um, especially the second band. The first band were very amusing. We had a lot of laughs. I don't know what happened there. You have to ask them one day. No one's ever going to explain why the three of them walked out on us. But uh, we went with Jim Cregan and Duncan Mackay joined the band and George Ford. With Stuart and me, it, it, it was madness on the road. It, it, things that I'm absolutely ashamed of. <laughs> you know, 
if I could go back. But, you know, it's of its time. Yeah, We yeah. got away with it. We got away with it. <laughs> yeah. through, you know, so I was a different person, but why not? I'm, but what, how do you feel about like yourself as a, like particularly as a songwriter at that at that point? Because obviously the success and hedonism is, that's all goes linked in. But like you know, it's it's one of those things where like uh, I suppose when you write a prolific load of songs, you're in a certain zone. So I'm just wondering like how you think of yourself as a writer. Then do you think you've changed as a songwriter? Or are you the oh, same? Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I mean those early albums are full of um, characters. Yeah. who came came from my private life. You know, they yeah. don't know I was writing, writing about them, using different, you know, different names. But these were events that really happened. I mean, there's a song called My Only Vice. Yeah. And he says, that in the narration, it says, um, Nina, was it, she, we called her Nina, and uh, she rolls up a Victorian vase. Well, this was a... a young Jewish girlfriend of mine whose family were in Golders Green in North London, very liberal compared to mine. They were very upper middle class and liberal. He was a lawyer, dad. And they let me sleep with her in their own house. We're only 19, I'm 20 years old. And she rolled spliffs and uh, her spliffs were hopeless. They were like really tight at the both ends <laughs> and a big fat bulge in the middle and just reminded me of a Victorian vase. So I uh, you know, I was writing a lot about the people around me, and uh, I was very, I was using um, powers of observation. I've been a journalist for four years as a reporter. Yeah. So I was used to asking questions. I was used to observing. But today, no, I can't do that today. I don't have that surrealistic look at life at all. I'm, okay. No, once I was married and had children, uh, I, conserv I became much more conservative. Um, the small scene and um <clears throat> i like the way it is i mean you evolve don't you yeah, not, yeah. i can't say one's preferable to the other i am who i am now yeah but we, yeah. we all are it's yeah thankfully most of us do grow up <laughs> not all of us yeah that's true one what, what of the questions that I, I spoke to a few people on your one of your fan pages and a question that um came up actually was um in your oh, let me read it it's from a guy called alex conway Several songs on the human menagerie and the psychomodo all reference various ca characters such as Lorraine, Louise, Loretta and Nina. It's clear that these are all real people obscured by allegory. However, my question is, are you still in touch with any of them? Uh, and do they know those songs uh, about them? Or is that... Yeah, um, one got a female friend is still a very dear friend to me, very close. We, we, give, we have each other's confidence. And she's brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, and yeah, I, I I fessed up to her in about nine, the mid eighties, <laughs> and she said, "I've always really liked that song." And I said, "You know, it's about you." And she she practically hit the floor. She said, "It's not possible." I said, "Totally true." Then I read the lyric to her. I said, "Look, watch this," and I went through the lyric. <laughs> she said. Yeah, that's you're talking about that night. Yeah, I am. Wow, and you're very inspiring. Um, yeah, uh, not Nina. No, no, no. I don't know. She went her own way. I, some of my friends back then went to university, which I never did, so I lost touch. You know. Yeah. I, I miss them. I often wonder at my age. I, you know, where is so and so that 
I've got male guys that were my pals that went to the Isle of Wight Festival in 69 with me and 70 as punters, you know. We went to all the big festivals, Reading, uh, one at Bath, which preempted pre pre um, Glastonbury, Shepton Mallet. We went to the really big festivals, slept in tents. You know, in those days, you put your tent up in the field where the show was, where the stage was. Sure. It wasn't a separate. Halcyon <laughs> days. Yeah. But Last I wonder, but those guys never been, you know, they saw me on top of the pops in 73 with Judy Team, was it 74? They've never come back to me and said, Steve, great to see it's happening. Can I get in touch? You kind of come to a show. I thought, I would love it. Yeah, sure. Very, very funny, funny guys. That, a long yeah. time ago, but... Uh, that just made me think a bit of that Bowie song, Where Are, Where Are We Now, actually. That's like captured very beautifully, that idea of, you know, the relationships that have kind of changed or lost touch. Yeah, he was quite, quite. he put that really succinctly. And um, you do wonder, you do. Because, you know, as a, as a writer, anyone who writes for a living, whether it's books, novels, you know, journalism, song, you are going to be curious. And so you will be thinking about, you know, those days, whether halcyon or, or or a waste of energy, it's, they were good. They were days you lived through. And where are those people? Yeah. How important is it coming from a, like the background of like being a reader first of all, and then a journalist? And obviously, your lyrics are amazing. How, it's a thing, isn't it? Like if you look at yourself or a, a Neil Young or Dylan, um, it's very clear that like they have a very marked voice. And sometimes they change and have different voices, but they are, you know, it's very important, I think, as a songwriter to develop your own sense of perspective or yourself as a kind of voice as a writer. How important do you think that is yourself as, as for other songwriters? I, I think that any of that happens by accident. Um, okay. if, if you are unique, that's what you're getting at. Um, it's got to happen by accident. You can't, it can't happen by design. Okay. Yeah. Today I am able to write sentiment that I couldn't write as a young man. <clears throat> That's why I use this surrealistic stance and style. Um, I, today it's much more straightforward. Um, the great joy I get at the moment is from singing. Yeah. Uh, this, yeah, performing. I love, love, love singing, uh, emoting. Finding out what what I was writing, you get in your own head. I mean, you know, yeah. it's like you have these strange thoughts performing, don't you? It's like yeah. singing with your eyes closed and trying to put your heart and soul into it. Then you've got not a shopping list exactly, but uh, extracurricular thoughts are going through your head. Yeah, I I I mean, I've nothing I love more than singing a friend for life. You know, I need a soulmate to hold me. A friend for life, and I'm hoping it might be you. Yeah, you know, and um, you know, and Journey's End, which I wrote for my son when he left university. Father's prayer, Father's promise, and uh, I'll be there on the road as the mystery unfolds. I'll be there when you need a special friend. I'll be there when you fear it's a never-ending road. I'll be there at journey's end. You know? <clears throat> I sing that, and I could sing it now for like thinking about my grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. First of them, Cameron is seven, and uh, I can't get enough. And <laughs> and he knows I voted for his daddy, and I uh, he actually says to me, uh, 
when you write a song for me when I leave university, Brenda. <laughs> how beautiful. I love that. So how often do you write songs now? Is it a sort of uh, a <clears throat> regular thing or is it when when the feeling takes you? No, it's 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 nigh impossible. Okay. Uh yeah, when you've got I'm not a materialist at all. I put people first, big time. Okay. People matter. Pictures on the wall don't matter. Um they're beautiful to look at, but if they went, come on, you know. Yeah. Well, I've got a lot of material goods. I mean, I'm looking around my house all the time saying, I'm going to sell that, sell that, sell, give it away. Too much stuff. <clears throat> um, and I think when you've got what you set out to acquire, it's hard to sound hungry. Right. And I think, yeah, I, I just think that I, it might come back to me, Elijah. It might come back to me. Um, I write all the time. Yeah. All the time. I mean, there are guitars set up in three different rooms. Yeah. And a, and a beautiful acoustic guitar is so tactile. You know, I look, I, I'm trying to watch Match of the Day, and then I'm thinking, oh, it's there. It's there. Yeah. I've got to pick that thing up. Yeah. And I have to pick it up, you know, keep the fingers skin hard i i play and play and play and i do hit the go button on a, a nice recording app on my iphone uh, i go to the grand piano and play and record so i've got tunes on the go all the time i've got a new guitar tuning that i think i've invented um played with only you only play with two fingers cool. um, yeah which is interesting because i i mentioned it in a zoom call to 300 fans <clears throat> Done three of them in COVID's period. And uh, it came up, and a guy wrote and said, This is fantastic. This tuning Steve's just given, given us. You play with two fingers. Well, that's interesting because five years ago, I had my right, my, on my left hand, I had one of my fingers amputated. Right. <laughs> Jesus. Now I can play the guitar again. Wow. 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 <laughs> oh, brilliant. It's just brilliant. Yeah, he was serious, but it was just it help but laugh. <clears throat> But do they complete? No, I don't complete them. I must have. Well, I transferred from uh, to something. Was it called? I don't know. Recordings on the phone onto my uh, PC. I iTunes. Yeah. Slipped it. Slipped it all over to iTunes, and I've got eighty, eighty-three new songs, and yeah. not one of them is in its complete form. So I, <laughs> I you know, as, as I trained as a reporter. <clears throat> you, you they're all bone idle what you do in journalism is you if you've got next wednesday at 10 o'clock deadline you do the work at nine o'clock wednesday you know everyone's like that in your journalism in my experience i mix i still mix with people that was, did extremely well in that career that i trained with still my really good friends and uh, they're all like it and i'm like it as a writer it's like if i book a studio it's going to cost a lot of money. I don't record at home. So I, I book a, like, for the Uncovered album, which was released a few just before COVID here, and before the Donald Dawson Donald album. Um, I book Rockfield for two weeks. Yeah. And I book musicians for 10 days of residential, you know, living and recording. I had to come in, uh, two of them are mine, nine of them are interpretations of great songs. But 
if I do that again, I would deliver. I would deliver eight or nine songs for a new CD or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I would deliver 45, 50 minutes of new songs. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I, I won't let people down. It's not in my nature to, to yeah, not deliver. Yeah. If I make a promise, I just have to stick to it. So in a way, that's also to do with the deadline, isn't it? In journalism and in like, because I'm a big believer that the deadline is a, is a quite a good thing in creativity because you, you, you like you said you don't want to let people down, but also it's you don't you know it's there's something in a deadline I think which can bring out a kind of instinct and a kind of uh, yeah. well, it's called fear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's called fear. I mean, on the Loves of Prima Donna album, I was living in the West End of London a seven or eight minute cab ride to Abbey Road. In fact, it lived in Abbey Road. I was there for six or seven albums. And I was on my way and every day when I was making albums, Cockney Rebel, I would go in with a new song every day. We'd, right. we'd sit down with the Beatles studio, number two. Yeah. Go downstairs into the big room and sit around the grand piano. Lady Madonna. Yeah. That, that piano. And we'd sit around it in an arc and uh, with a trap set, little drum kit set up, and um, I'd routine a new song every day. Then we'd record, never finish, you know, the overdubs left to do, but I would start a new one every day. Um, Prima Donna, Loves of Prima Donna was pretty well complete, but I knew I was missing four minutes. It was short, and uh, I'm on the way in, and I hadn't got a song. I was going to go in a, a, a blag, you know, bluff my way through. Yeah. But on his radio in the cab came. It was George singing, singing "Here Comes the Sun." Yeah. And I went in and said, "I've never done a cover version before." I said, "Guys, I'm, I'm going to make an, an apocryphal version of Here Comes the Sun.' You know, you listen to the words, and it's so so heartbreaking. I mean, George manages to say. It's so depressing. Long, cold, lonely. Doesn't matter how bad is this going to get. It's been a long, cold, lonely winter. It's a desolate scene that he set up. And so I produced it as Crash Bang Wallop, 16 to the bar on the ride scene. You know, ricochet accents to be a, the apocalypse. Right. You know, uh, apocalyptic. I shouldn't have said apocryphal, of course, it was genuine, but I meant apocalyptic. And interestingly, talking of songwriting, that's a, a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. Yeah. Sublime. Yeah. And uh, I never knew until about five years ago the, the EMI record plugger, Eric Hall. Yeah. Eric died two years ago, afraid, but Eric plugged all my hits. Worked for the Beatles, worked for everyone that was released on EMI from like yes, all through the seventies. Uh, he knew George Harrison really well. Everything I know about Apple, and uh, he never told me. I I was asked for 30, 40 years. What did George Harrison think? And I I don't know. I don't no idea. Got the royalties. It was a big hit, and we sing it a lot so on stage as PRS. You know, whatever. He didn't need the money. I never did know. And then Eric said to me five years ago, I was on an interview with Eric on a local radio station where we had a show. And we talked about it. And I said to him, you know, I never knew, Eric, what, what George thought. He never knew. 
He loved it. He loved it. And I said, oh, tell me. I mean, it's not, I'm not vain, but I needed to know. Tell me, Eric. And he said, oh, he loved it. I, I, every time I saw him, he'd say, that's out of all the cover versions of Here Comes the Sun, Harley really got to the point and all this. Did he? He said that? <laughs> it meant a lot to me. That's the well, definitely it would do. Listen, you're, I mean, talking about versions and cover versions, obviously, like Come Up and See Me is one of the most covered songs of all time. And also, I think PRS said it's one of the most broadcasted songs of all time. I have to ask you, and I'm sure you, you may be bored of answering it, but just because I've always wanted to ask you this question, where did that song come from? Tell me about where it came from. Well, it came out of adversity. Uh, it was my uh, finger pointing. You know, we'd had a successful Cockney Rebel for two two albums, and we'd, we'd just finished a 44-day sold-out tour. We were riding a crest, and three of the guys came to me and said, with all these ultimatums, um, and I said, well, I can't meet them. I mean, I've, I've half written the third album already that you don't know about, you know. I said I was on a mission, at least for three albums. I formed the band. It was my plan, my idea, and I, you know, I, I wasn't autocratic, and I'm not like that, but I just was a young man on a mission. Yeah. And they came and peed in the orange juice and walked out saying, we can do that. You know, some make me smile is saying, you know, one day you'll come, I'll, I'll come up and see you. You're come up and see me, make me smile. Um, I mean, it's a bit arrogant. You've done it all, broken every code. I mean, we had a code band of brothers, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, the, and for only metal, you know, they wanted money. Yeah. So, but we're on the road, you know, we've got to pay back the advance to EMI. It's not my fault that we've had a big advance. It gets recouped, you know. Ugh. I was never a businessman anyway. I didn't think I needed to be. I was a you know, singer, songwriter. So uh, it's it's it is literally about that. Um, I suppose the irony of that was just you know, like you say, but for metal, and then you know, out of adversity comes this song. And if you've anyone's ever been been in a band and someone quits or you make that bond, I've been in that situation where you write, you know, you have your dream and your bond and you've got going and someone decides to leave it. It's heartbreaking and it's very, yeah. and it's, you know, as, as the main songwriter as well, I've had those moments where people want to have their way or whatever. So it's the irony is that them leaving, create you create this wonderful, massive song to kind of document that. And uh, it's, it's yeah. Do you, many, many sort of big acts or big artists who've had those huge records like Sebastian and GDT and uh, Come Up and See Me, sometimes they complain about those songs and they see them as a burden. Do, oh. what's, your, what's your relationship with that? Do you, do you Have you ever felt that or not? That's ridiculous. Good. Good to hear that. It's just absolutely mad. Yeah. And Morrison won't sing Brown Eyed Girl or whatever, you know. What's, up, what's happening here? You know? Yeah. I can understand to a degree. I'm in that if you've been bubblegum and then you mature, yeah. like one of the great blues players and the loveliest man, Andy Fairweather Lowe. Yeah. Well, you know, Amen Corner was pretty bubblegummy, you know. It was written by Tim Pan Alley, them songwriters, um, all their hits, I think. Uh, wonderful records, but maybe Andy's a grown man, a mature man, and doesn't want to be singing paradise words, papa's nice as heaven yeah. that you take me. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he does. I don't know. But if you've matured 
out of your young manhood into something completely different, then you would put them aside. Yeah. I can, can kind of get that. But if you've it's been through your career, I mean, no, Judy Teen is quite exciting for me every night to perform it. We, it's, like so much of my work, it's, it's never the same twice. It's, it's, you know, I play with the lyric, I play with the uh, inflection. Um, so I get fun out of it. And it owes me nothing. Judy Teen changed my life. It was the first hit. Um, well, Sebastian was the first hit in most of Europe. It's not in the UK. Judy Teen was. It's not a bad little song, to be honest. Uh, she really existed. Oh, yeah. She was American from New York. In from New York, prompted her to talk of Super Bowls. Yeah, she was a character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, had fun with, I had fun with her. She wasn't called Judy. I can't remember. She was a New Yorker living in London and opened up so many uh, new fields of play for me. I, you know, I'd lived a certain kind of life, but she was something else. <laughs> <laughs> it's refreshing to hear you say that because I often find it kind of, I, you know, it's a bit silly when when people have who've written great songs sort of feel, uh, you know, reluctant to play them. You know, and it sounds very refreshing to hear that you, as a performer, and I understand this myself, is that you find yourself in it again, don't you? From night to night, in the, through the physical act of playing it, but you find just the the words might a, a different phrase lands in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And remember, even that one going back that far, fifty or fifty years. Um, these are. People in their 60s are now, you know, are singing, and they sing, she made us happy. They sing it, like, as one. Pretty well everywhere I go, everywhere I play. And I remember just not so long ago, I don't say every night by any means, but um, not long ago, it was such a big shout from this sold-out room audience. And I, I remember looking into that mic and saying, you feel young again, don't you? <laughs> Because they, I always say to them, I figure that my audience is, uh, this year we played about 40 odd shows so far, and I'm 72. <clears throat> and I always say to them, I figure you're in the mid 60s. And they all go, yeah, why? And I say, well, because I think when I was 22, when I was 23, on top of the pops, you were probably 16, yeah. 17, buying that record, putting my poster on your bedroom wall. And it's true. So yeah. most of bands in the audience are six or seven years younger than the artist or the yeah, yeah. When, when you were like uh, when playing folk clubs and when you said you were busking um i'm a big believer in sort of <laughs> playing songs live because i think you kind of you get to know them but do, do you think like that helped you become a, a sort of sh talented songwriter and sharp writer because you if you're playing in clubs and bars where people might be into it or they might not be or they're indifferent or if you're busking on the street People walk by, people put money in the hat. Did that help you develop as a songwriter? Those kind <laughs> yeah, of yeah. yeah. Well, it helped me develop as a, as, certainly as a performer. Yeah. I mean, I played, I played to, in the folk clubs, I played to no one. They weren't listening to me at all. Mm. I, I mean, the, the act that was playing would have been uh, Bert Yansh or Richard uh, Tom, the Thompson, Richard and his wife, Linda Thompson. Yeah. John John Martin, Martin Carthy, Julie Felix. I went to see all of those perform, and uh, I was a floor spotter. You know, that's where you 
today it's open mic or whatever, but you turn up with the guitar in a case and sit on the floor and at the interval, put your hand up and get spotted, the yeah. floor spotter. And I would get up and sing, but I would sing stuff that went on the human menagerie. I would sing Muriel the actor, what Ruthie said, and Sebastian. And of course, I'm in a folk club. In, in, I'm in Bunges and Cousins, Troubadour, London. And these were like latent hippies, folk music people. Just had no time for me at all. And I didn't mind. Yeah, I didn't mind. It was, uh, it was a quite an experience. And on the on the basking, you see, in the early 70s, <clears throat> basking at Piccadilly and Hyde Park Corner and places, um, the money that we made was from mostly American tourists, which we don't have anymore. But they were American tourists. And... Uh, I'd rock up at a, 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 a spot in an in a, in a, uh, um, underpass and see this guy's guitar case full of money. And I'd be thinking, oh, this is a good spot. This is a good spot. And he, once you turn up, the busker has to move on after so long, right. half an hour or something, to give, give, you, give you a chance. And I'd make nothing because <laughs> I had hair down to my neck, a collar on my back. And, Barefoot, I, I was a beard, I had velvet ankle length girls, double breasted overcoat that a girlfriend had given me. So I looked a right mess and I'm singing these songs and they just gave me a wide berth. They walked right around me. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, so it, it was a hard uh, introduction to live performance, but it didn't, it didn't deter me. It's good to go through that, isn't it? How to up and sort of makes you realise it doesn't matter if people ignore you. It's like you can still. It's, it's not the moment, you're not going to get crushed by that. You can still be you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just take more than that to keep me down. Good, good. Um, so when you like, you know, obviously you're like you've just explained at the moment that you write, you're writing, and you've got these eighty-three ideas, and so I'm asking this question for like you now but you also back in the 70s would it be what was your habit as a songwriter would you words first music first or just feeling how how would a song sort of what was your natural kind of way of writing yeah no it's it's there is no method to me okay. no it's uh it's just it's not like elton john writes a tune and sends it over to bernie tobin and writes lyrics it's, it's yeah. not like that it's it could come either way yeah. um you know i as a former journalist I, I still carry a notebook and pen everywhere i go absolutely everywhere in a pocket or in a bag it's a notebook and pen and uh, so i'm writing a lot i write a lot you know <clears throat> and uh you know just had a few weeks in greece with my family grandchildren and everyone and um one morning i came downstairs sitting right by the swimming pool with uh, a notebook and where's my pen Where's my pen? It was almost like a mild panic. Where's yeah. my pen? Yeah. And I had to go and ask them all, who's got my pen? Where's my pen? Who's borrowed my pen? Of course, the seven-year-old grandson had picked it up and gone scribbling somewhere. Bless him. But it was a terrible feeling. You know, yeah. I got another one in my suitcase. I got more than one. But it was my favorite sort of biro. Yeah. My favorite one. I get, I've got to buy them by the dozen. And... Uh, it was a real worry 
It's like, right, I said to them, look, be careful, darling, because it's granddars and I write all the time. I just write all the time. Don't you see me, don't you? You know I do. I can't write without a pen. And he's very sweet, but um, bless him. Um, but that's all I'm trying to do is explain to you, express to you um, that I am writing all the time. It's nature, yeah. my nature. I'm observing. I mean, in the cinema or theatre, I just have to get, I'm scribbling in the dark. I hear a line of dialogue and say, Crikey, that's a great chorus. Yeah, yeah. A great line, that's a great chorus. And I'm doing that all the time. <clears throat> then I come home and I start writing tunes. I mean, it, it's putting the two together that's becoming a, a stress. Sure. I, I can't say why. I, I, uh, I just perhaps it's because it, deep down I don't really want the stress of going back to a recording studio for three weeks and making a whole new album. I, I'm happy with what I've got. I've got 12 original albums. I've got the Uncovered album, which I'm madly proud of because it's so beautifully recorded by Matt Butler. It's just brilliantly recorded. I'm really proud of it. Nine songs that I didn't write, but I've made them my own, I hope, and I sent them to all the writers. Most of them wrote back and said, you know, you didn't make it your own. It was what mattered to me. Okay. He said, how do you want it to sound, my engineer? I said, I want it to sound like I wrote it. Right, cool. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I think, you know, a live performance, I've got 80 shows on sale for next year. Wow. Already. Yeah, they're already on sale, 80, 80 shows. And uh, that's really, I'm still the wandering minstrel, you know, the troubadour. I have a wonderful house, a lovely property, a couple of acres of woodland. We are very privileged, very lucky. Brilliant. So let me ask you just a couple of final questions, if I may. Um, if you had any advice to a songwriter, whether they're a beginner or just someone who hobbies around, what advice would you give them? Never give up. Never give up. Yeah. You know, it's you've got to keep getting back up when they kick you, when they knock you down. It's uh, you've got to have faith. It, it's like I don't have practical advice at all. Absolutely none. I've done a few master classes. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. But at, at Lipper, Paul McCartney's one in Liverpool a couple of times, and a couple of other music colleges in. Uh, and, the, and they're not all budding musicians. Some of them are sound tech guys, youngsters. It's hard work because they don't seem to have the questions to ask. Um, they're not they're not as confident these days as we were as young people. Yeah. No, they, they seem to lack the drive, self confidence. And I say to them, if you want to perform, you've really, really got to learn. The tricks you've really got to want it back. You know, there's an old adage in the uh, thespian world where the, you know, I would like to be an actor. What advice do you give me? And the old actor, the experienced actor, says, "If you really, really, really want to do it, don't. But if you have to do it, do it." That is exactly how I feel about songwriting and art in general it's like i have to do it because i can't do anything else that's right 
that's it, you know. That's right. Well, that was that was how I felt about songwriting. Absolutely, I had to get it all off my chest. But maybe I've done that. You see. Sure, sure, sure. Maybe if I try it now, it will be drivel. It, it won't be interesting. And I'd rather just end on a high note, as it were. You know, um, the last original album I released, "Stranger Comes to Town," it's got some of my. Just, I remember it's got songs on them as proud of as anything I did when I was a young man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's quite, I mean, I was listening to Tarantino the other day, actually, talking about he's got this concept that he's got his 10th movie and that's his final movie. And a lot of people are asking him, why, why, why? And his, his thing was, because I want to finish on a high. I want to, like, that's my work. And yeah. I'm I, and I'm curating that. And it's and as as an artist, I'm saying that's my thing. And that's, that's to- totally bloody fine, you know, especially when you've got the kind of material you've got or he's got. It's like, this is who I am and it's, I don't have to carry on with it, you know. It's it, it's some canon of work. Yeah, exactly. He's got. And he's obviously immensely wealthy. You see, this is a thing about, you need to write the songs in order to have an audience to play live. Yeah. Okay? So you have to have the songs. Songwriting is of the essence. But then when it gets into your blood, as it's in mine, this touring, this hotels and playing live, <clears throat> it, it's because we have to do it, you see. Why does Springsteen keep going out on these marathons? Elton John, Paul McCartney, Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, they've all got more money than you can shake a stick at. Yeah. You know, you're talking more millions than you can, you know, it's ridiculous sums of money that they, that they have, that they've earned. Rod Stewart, Rod's my pal, and he keeps doing it. Why? It's because he can't not do it. Yeah, yeah. That's and, it. Yeah, the, you're not doing it for money. How much do you need? It's, you who, it's who you are, right? That's it. You it's, are. It's, who you it's, are. It's, ox, it's oxygen. You know, it's oxygen. Yeah. yeah. What's, your relationship? What's, what's your relationship with the concept of the muse? Do you believe in the muse? Is that a kind of... Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm very romantic. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Greek mythology is a big interest to me. Um, yeah, um, I, uh, I said to you earlier, the muse may well come back and sit on my shoulder. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can't say never, never say never. It's, you can't know it won't happen. Do you think the music is like a universal force? Do you think it's just inspiration? Well, it's inspiration. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm romantic, but I'm not a fantasist. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> um it, it, it's an inspiration, a sense of where did that come from? How did I write that? Why why did I say that? Where did I get that from? I mean, you look inside your own canon of work, I do of mine. Um you know, trying to put a set list together and vary it from night to night or tour to tour, you know, it's 150 songs to pick from. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I have to learn these songs and reload them. And, you know, you think, I wish I could do that today. How did I write that? I wish I could do that today. And I can't because I'm a different person. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. Also, when you're younger, you'll write fearlessly. Yeah, you have no fear. You don't care about intimidation or criticism. Yeah, as you're older, as a father and grandfather or grandmother, if 
few moments. Um, you you do have different sensitivities. Yeah, sure. And different um, priorities. Yeah. And you do worry. I worry a lot about criticism. I, 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 I don't want to be kicked in the nuts. I don't want to be anymore. So maybe it's a fear. Maybe I don't release new product because I'm afraid of being knocked not back. I don't know. Again, I'm no psychologist, but there might be that. It might also be that I'm quite happy with my lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? As long as I've got an audience. Yeah, yeah. I've got a livelihood. I make, when I work, 10 people work, you know? Yeah. I like that. I like yeah. the idea of being busy. Yeah. Helping other people be busy because being a self-employed musician is tough. Wait, waiting for the phone to ring or the email to ping these days. <laughs> That's a bit of rhyming there as well as a couple of... <laughs> That's good. He's got it. Okay, Steve, let me ask you one final question. And thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast and for your insights and for your time. I ask this of every songwriter and then it will change from day to day, from moment to moment. But if you could have written any song, not your song, but any other song, and had that in your head and worked through that and made a record out of it. Whose song would you pick to hear it today and why would you pick it? To, to do what? If you could have written someone else's song. Oh. Oh. Um, that would be an, a pretty much an endless list. I mean, all of great singer-songwriters. Um, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen. Three Canadians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Weird. I would have to take visions of Johanna. Wow. Because the mystery is so deep, it's unfathomable. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I have to say that if I was asked that question, come up and see me would be, <laughs> be one of those. So thank you very much for... I've your... enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you very much. Really Thanks, Steve. And uh, I'll direct everyone to your website. And uh, yeah. Brilliant. Well, give, us a, give us a link and my, my uh, social media people will put it all up. Thank you. Mate. Thank you have so a, much for your time. Have a lovely day and thank you. And yourself. Real, a real joy. Anytime, my friend. Anytime. All right.